I will be very shocked if there aren't a lot of questions, so let's go. Take it away. Don's got the mic for our five loyal podcast listeners. Speaking of the mic. Questions? Does mental ascent have anything to do with what you talked about today? I think so. Um, so there's three, there's three possibilities of resolving the faith issue. One is, I only mentioned two, degrees of faith. So it's the same object, it's the same content, it's just believing more. That is a category. You got the man saying, I believe, help my unbelief, in the other Gospels. I'm not sure that's what's going on here. The other option would be types of faith. Um, James gives us that category, the demons believe demonic faith, right? Um, The third option, which I didn't mention here, would be content of faith, what you're believing about Jesus. I tend to think um, the first and third are mostly what's going on here. Remember John's statement in writing that you would believe, not just believe in Jesus, but you believe two specific things, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, almost certainly Nicodemus did not believe those two things. Um, And his statement and confession, as much as it indicated he was paying attention, as much as it indicated he was compelled by some things about Jesus, so that content is absent, which is what Jesus actually gives him in the rest of the, the, the exchange, right? So he fills in that missing information. The other piece... Um, in John about faith is being willing to act. If you look at the last verse of chapter 3, it gives us this notion. So you've got, you do have some sort of timid faith. You've got the people in 12 who they believe, but they're afraid. Like, you've got to figure out what your God is. You've got to figure out what you worship. You've got to figure out what you're going to base your life on. And until you do, jury's out on whether the people in John 12 are okay. But if you look at, someone read for me the last verse of John 3. Anyone? Well, actually, no. That's really interesting. He who believes has eternal life, but he who does not obey, which makes a very strong connection between what you believe and what you do. So I I think John's gospel, at least, presses along. If you say you believe, but you're not willing to act on it, we'll see. And the notion of content, of what are you believing about Jesus? Well, Nicodemus tells us, you're a teacher, you're from God, you're God's work and powerful signs for you. Well, that's good. That's not believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, so I think John, along those two axes, I don't think John uses types of faith like James does with his demonic faith, but I think you do get some of this degree notion and further content. Uh, so when the disciples remembered after the, John 2, and the, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered the words he had said and they believed his words and the scripture. They have a better, they have more content. Oh, okay, the Messiah was going to die and be raised. There, there's more content added to their belief. I wouldn't view that as much as it's stronger belief as much as broader belief. Um, so that's, that. I, I think John moves along those two axes. Liz. So when it talks in the in Bible about how um, you can have faith, you know, the size of a mustard seed or faith like a child. Yeah. What, what is that? I mean, are <laughs> just like different degrees of faith as we mature or, I mean, cause you can't completely say that a child that, you know, has confessed and, you know, is right. born, you know, born again at maybe five. Is that, mm. what does that mean? Good question. 
and, and, and this is part of the challenge. We don't want to make faith into something so complicated and so complex. Let me deal with those in reverse order. The, the question is, what do you do with faith like a mustard seed and childlike faith? Childlike faith to me is way more intimidating. Childlike faith to me is, in other words, Jesus does say childish faith. If you tell your kids that there's a bunny that hides eggs, the, you, and your mom and dad, they'll be like, okay. Childlike faith to me is exemplified by like, if mom or dad said so, okay. Like, I know it's ridiculous. Okay. You know what I mean? So I, I, childlike faith intimidates me more than anything. Um, it's, it's the raw, yeah, I'm a kid. I'm stupid. I don't know. You, you told me so. Okay. Now the mustard seed is, is more to the point on, on, on the, the quality. I think, <clears throat> I think most of John's concept is around content. Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then I think universally the Bible would say, if, until you're willing to act on it, it's not faith. Until you're prepared to act. It's, it's the same way as like, okay, I want to lose weight. I want to eat dessert. We'll find out what, what I want more after dinner today, right? No, no, right? So you've got competing desires. So I think the Bible's assumption is at the end of the day, you're going to act on what you believe. What you act on is what you believe, right? And so in John 12, like, what's more valuable to you? The praise of man or the praise of God? Well, at the point of the writing of John 12, the praise of man. I, I want what they have to give me more than I want what God got Scott to give me. So I, 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 there's a trap here of, do I believe enough? And people going home and questioning their salvation. Because I believe it. And I would simply put it, is your content accurate? You're believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And is this a faith you're willing to act on? Then I think you're good. I wouldn't want to make it any... any. Can you see evidences of how you're living your life because of what you believe? Then I, I wouldn't want to stress that any further than that. If, however, your content's messed up, I think Jesus is a good moral teacher, or you're never actually willing to act on it at all, then I'd say the Bible would call into question your faith. But, but your point of... And I've met people... I haven't met them as many in the last 10, 20 years, but I've met people who... It can really... Do I believe enough? And you go home and you nasal gaze and, nasal gaze and you, you try to work up more belief because that's not a good place to go either. Um, good question. Okay? Other questions? Nothing else. So let me, let me ask bigger, broader questions. Do you guys, any questions, or does it make sense that I'm arguing that 2.23 to 3.21 um, is a unit? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. If you, if you remember that the chapter divisions were added around the 6th century, the verse, di- no, the verse, no, chapter division 6th century, the verse divisions like the 12th. Um, if you just read through it, it's just, he knew it was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees. It, it, it makes the most sense to me that the, the uh, difficulty at the end of two is, is explained by Nicodemus. And then by the time you're done the Nicodemus encounter, okay, I can see how somebody could believe in Jesus' name and Jesus also wouldn't entrust himself to him. Um, that, that to me is key for understanding. Any, any questions on any of that? Is this a new way of reading Nicodemus? Has anyone heard the whole Nicodemus snuck out? And he was the hopeful. I mean, I've heard it. Anyone? No, I'm the only one. Anybody? No. Okay. You. Okay, Don. Everyone's just staring at me like deer in the headlights. Okay. 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 Questions, thoughts with this. Come on.
Mrs. Walter. Microphone needs a microphone. Right there. There you go. There you go. Uh, so the thought is, you know, Nicodemus, you know, believed Jesus was a great teacher, but not the Messiah that they'd been looking for all these years. Right. Probably. So, so part of what's so part of what's striking and trying to reverse engineer is that the way Jesus interacts with Nicodemus and the way Jesus at, interacts with the woman at the well in the next chapter is strikingly different. Jesus, I wouldn't say he's rude, but he's so getting to the point, and I think this is unpacking, we'll, we'll look at this next week. He knows what's in man. He knows what Nicodemus needs to hear. The fact that Nicodemus ultimately comes to faith shows Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. But he doesn't say, well, that's good of you. I mean, conversely, look at the woman at the well. She's literally trying to run away from him in the conversation. He says, well, call your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, that's right, because you've had five, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Speaking of husbands, which mountain should we worship? I mean, she is, she is not trying to face her sin. She's dodging. And Jesus just, just patiently, doggedly pursues her, right? Nicodemus is like, good teacher. We know you're from, you must be born. I mean, it, it's it's totally different approach. Um, so that suggests to me some of what might be going on. Um, the text isn't explicit on this, but what have we seen the Pharisees do already in John? They send people to interrogate John the Baptist. They want signs from Jesus. There's, there's the potential that in this encounter, Nicodemus is showing up potentially even as a representative of the Pharisees and speaking for them. And, you know, and, and so if any of that's going on, then what Jesus' pushback is saying is, what makes you think you're in a position to even see rightly? What makes you think you're? In a, what makes you think? Really, wouldn't the better question be? Would I, am I in a spiritual state where I'd recognize the Messiah if I saw him? That might be a better question, Nicodemus, to ask. And so he just hits him, not not rudely, but certainly jarringly, certainly um, no nicety, no niceties. You know, provocatively. <laughs> provocatively. Well, and eventually, are you the teacher of Israel? Is definitely a rebuke. There's definitely some sting to that going on there. Um, and like I said, the fact that Nicodemus shuts up is probably the most hopeful thing for him. In fact, if you, if you grasp the words, Nicodemus' opening statement's the longest, 24 words, then it gets cut in half, then that gets cut in half, and then he shuts up, and he's gone. And he's just, he's just retreating in the narrative as Jesus is, is stepping forward in the narrative. And so <coughs> th- that whole thing going on where, where Jesus is... is and that's going to be a hard thing. You're the teacher of Israel. You're a Pharisee. You haven't been born again. You can't see. And you're powerless before God's spirit to change your state. Yeah, Nicodemus. What? What? How? What? <laughs> I mean, that's his whole response, right? Is he's, he's tripping up over at the very least. I mean, because it doesn't say he refuses it, but he doesn't receive or believe it yet. He's going to have to chew on it some, for some time. Um and, and it's interesting, Nicodemus moves by stages. If you go to chapter 7, where he shows up, um, I'll, I'll take you briefly to his three appearances in John. In John 7, he shows up. Jesus has gone gorilla style up to the Feast of Booths, not publicly, secretly, and he just stands up in the middle of the temple and starts teaching. You know? And they send people to go arrest him. And so in 750, where are we at? Um, 45. The officers came to the Pharisees and the priests and the Pharisees and said to them, 
Why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who'd gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? Which is, he's not a disciple, but he's arguing Jesus' case, right? He's saying, look, guys, you haven't even talked to him yet. Isn't our law actually say to give an answer without hearing his folly and shame? One person's case seems right till another comes and examines him. Is it really righteous of us to condemn him when we haven't even heard to him? And then they, they replied to him, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, so there's Nicodemus' second encounter. I wouldn't call him a disciple, but at the very least, he's, trying, he's, he's arguing Jesus' side. Or at least give him a fair hearing, guys. And then in 19, <coughs> excuse me, all the way to John 19, um, his final appearance. Um, yeah, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body. And Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with spices and in the burial custom of the Jews. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there." So here's Nicodemus actually stepping forward, taking Jesus' body, giving it an honorary burial. You're, you're publicly identifying with him. I think the statement about Joseph of Arimathea being secret was secret up until that point. Once you're talking to Pilate, you're not secret anymore. Once you're getting burial t- tombs, you're not secret anymore. Do you guys know the significance of a tomb no one had been buried in before? Jewish burials two-step. You, you put the body in a tomb exposed to the air, and then you come back a year or so later and you gather the bones. Remember when Joseph is getting ready to die and he says, hey, when, you, when the Lord takes you up to the land, you take my bones. They had ossuaries, bone boxes. And so you could reuse then the tomb multiple times. You'd leave the body, you'd wrap it with the incense, which would make the decomposition less stinky. And you'd come back a year or so later, you'd open the tomb, and then you'd gather up the bones and you'd put them in a small box and then you could reuse the tomb. That's the Jewish custom of burial. And uh, Jesus was buried in a tomb that had never been used, which presumably is not cheap. Um, anyway, that's, that's for nothing, but the, uh, that's the Jewish burial um, con- concepts. Remember when the guy says, let me bury my father? It's quite possible that he's speaking in between those two periods. His dad's dead, but we got to wait around a year or so until we do the second burial. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but that might explain it. Um, Otherwise, you'd think, well, if your dad's burials this afternoon, go, you know. But if he's saying, yeah, I got to wait a year. I got to hang around here for a year until it's time to do the second burial. That could explain that as well. But anyway. Okay, questions, thoughts? Donna. Does it actually say how Nicodemus came to believe? No. Okay. Nope. We just see, Nicodemus, it's cool. Nicodemus has these three data points. And I think that the thing we got to resist is because the thing we got to resist is the good guys and bad guys approach. 
Nicodemus becomes the disciples. He's a good guy. And then the first time we see him, we're like, oh, Nicodemus. And no, Nicodemus, if we take John 3 on his own terms, Nicodemus is speaking for an unbelieving group that Jesus recognizes as an unbelieving group. He says, you all don't believe, you all don't receive. The second time, Nicodemus is not publicly a disciple, but he's siding with Jesus enough that the rest of the Pharisees are teasing him, giving him some sass. You're from Galilee too. And then the third time he shows up, he's publicly going on record. So I don't, maybe we get to heaven, we can find out his story. So we just get, it's like watching a movie and you see 30 seconds here and 30 seconds in the middle of the movie and 30 seconds to the end. We know his arc, but how that happens, I don't know. Um, It's, I can't wait to find out. But no, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are people in church history who have written fanciful accounts of how it happened. They all, there's no lack of that stuff. But no, we don't know. We don't know at all. I certainly would say the things Jesus says in three, I'm sure, rattled around in his head. I mean, because remember, the whole statement is Jesus knows what's in men. He knows what this guy needs. He's aware of his interior life. So Nicodemus kind of needed the stop, stop blowing smoke up my backside, Nick. You're, you're blind. And you're the teacher of Israel. You're not tracking me. Come on, Nick. Like Nicodemus kind of needed that direct treatment. It clearly worked, you know. Yeah. No, and that's unless if. Several times because I look back, and I think of all the people who tried to witness to me. You know, so, so I know it wasn't the first time I was witnessed to that I came to know the Lord. It took a while. Well, and that's, and that's one of the cool things when you hear people's testimony is how differently the Lord brings people to himself. Some people, C.S. Lewis describes himself coming, kicking, and screaming. Others through a gentle wooing. Other people through like the world, the bottom dropping out and just collapse. Other people through a, what? Martin Luther, Martin Luther right. I mean, you've just got the Lord bringing people to himself in, in any number of ways. There's not one size fits all how people come to faith. Paul rode to Damascus. That's unique, right? Um, so, the, the, and even like I said, the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well, Jesus' evangelistic approach couldn't be more different with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, which again gets back to as you learn different methods of evangelism and tools. Tools are good. Have a bunch of tools in your tool belt, but if you get to the point where you think there's just one way to evangelize or witness, Jesus disagrees. G- Jesus doesn't know one way to do it. He, he's talking to people in their own context, d- dealing very differently with different people. Um, so that tells us that we need to, um, that one time to tell somebody something, it could stick with them for years. Well, so, in some senses, things for me, I'd say the truth that I learned as a four, five, six-year-old rattled around in my head and 20, 25 years later bore fruit. Um, that, that's how I'd equate it. Just slowly God pressing his hand on me, crushing me until like, I yield, ah, you know, and that's, that's how I came to faith. Um, sure. But no, we should never stop witnessing to, to the lost. We should never stop praying for our family members who are unsaved. We should never, no, we should never give up on that. Um, yeah, this, this is another example. Someone who's going to become a disciple may not become a disciple the first time they hear or the second time they hear. Sure. Absolutely. This kind of fits along with what you were just saying. So we take no part in responsibility for the spirit regenerating us and our faith is a gift from God that no one would boast. So how do we um, apply that and sort of encourage our thinking when we are witnessing to family members, friends, 
um, even our children, just that, um, that seeming contradiction of knowing that we have no ability to transform, and yet we have a responsibility and a privilege to share what is true and of the Lord. Great question. Um, so let me, let me pause by establishing your premise. If, I don't know how many of you guys remember three or four weeks ago when, um, when um, Terry Schoenfeld was here. And he said, regeneration is the cause, not the result of faith. Anyone pick up on that? I picked up on it. I was like, way to go, Terry. What's, so the first statement is this. Nowhere in John 3 does Jesus tell Nicodemus what he needs to do to be born again. In fact, that's kind of the point. You must be born again. I mean, tell me, what first does Jesus say, do this and you'll be born again? The call of the gospel is not be born again. The call of the gospel is belief. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, you're not going to be able to believe. You're not going to be able to see and understand unless you're born of the Spirit. Um, so when the New Testament applies new birth language, I'm thinking of here, First Peter 1 and James 1, it's credited, the new birth is credited alternatively with the Spirit here. In James, of his own will, he brought us forth as a kind of first fruits or birthed us by his word. Same thing with First Peter. If you were born not by perishable things, such as gold or silver, but by the imperishable word of God. So the new birth is accomplished in the New Testament by both the Holy Spirit and by the word. That, that's the agencies credited with the new birth. We have an influence on one of those two. We can present the word. We can, we can water. And so what's our responsibility with our children, with our friends and family? We need to keep bringing the seed of the word. Go, go to First Corinthians 3. Um, this is how Paul describes the conversion and growth of the church at Corinth. Three, five through nine. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom he believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered. So in the context of the church at Corinth, Paul planting is his evangelism in Corinth that thus created the church. And the watering is Apollos' ongoing teaching. Right? I planted Apollos watered. God gave the growth. Conclusion. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. We don't get to take the credit. Paul's an awesome evangelist. Look how many people got saved. Apollos is an awesome teacher. Look how they're growing. Um, no, God's an awesome God who gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, here, there is some credit you can give Paul and Apollos, but it's only for their faithfulness, relative faithfulness. It's the only thing they can take any credit in. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. If we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul can say, look, I worked hard. Elsewhere, he'll say, I worked harder than all the apostles. Like, there's some way of measuring Paul that way. You don't measure Paul by the number of people who got saved. You don't measure Apollos by the growing maturity in the body. You measure them by their, their labor, their work. So, so Paul can say the growth entirely depends upon the Lord, but I'm planting and watering. Or my, probably my favorite passage, Second Timothy 3, 2, no, 2. Second Timothy 2, sorry. Twenty four to twenty six. (coughs) 
The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's my side of the ledger, what I'm responsible for. Or if you want to put that into a parent, the Lord's slave parenting kids has got to just plug all that in. What's on God's side of the ledger? If perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So on the one hand, Stacy, I'd say your kids coming to faith, whether they do or they don't, doesn't credit you or discredit you. God says he'd, what you're going to be measured by, back to Paul's thing, is were you long-suffering, were you patient, were you faithful, were you gentle when wronged, were you able to teach them? I mean, so there's plenty of things that you and I can fail with in this, but it's not the outcome. The outcome is in God's hands. He says he'll handle that. So there is, the danger would be, my kids got saved, therefore I did a great job as a parent. You could be a complete failure as a parent, and yet God could be pleased to save a child. And, and the Lord himself says, children I have reared, and they don't know me. So the perfect parent has rebellious kids. So I'd say pr- pray like a Calvinist. I mean, pr- pray, Lord, save them. Lord, open their eyes. I mean, you, every morning, Lord, open our eyes. I don't say, Lord... Let us make a free and uncoerced decision. Lord, open our eyes. Remove dead hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Pray boldly because God can do that. And then recognize that <clears throat> the part of the, uh, the equation that we can be responsible for, the word being present, make sure it's present. Uh, Titus also talks about dressing up or adorning the doctrine of God. Like we can make the truth of God look beautiful or we can make the truth of God look ugly. And God would have us dress it, adorn it properly. So we can, we can make God's truth look beautiful, right? Do that. But that's all we can do. You want to go further with that or is that? Okay. Okay. Um, Jake in the back. I was thinking about uh, you and Liz both mentioned uh, childlike faith. Yeah. It was something that um, Nicodemus clearly hadn't attained to yet because What's so scary, you talk about childlike faith, what's so scary about it is the complete acceptance of authority. A child is to the point where just because they don't understand it doesn't mean they don't completely accept it and obey it. That's the childlike faith. Nicodemus is still quibbling over signs and, you know, the little how nuances can this of be? it. I don't yeah, understand. how could this be? He still wants to understand. But a childlike faith is, in some sense, this is not the, it's not the first step, it's the last step. We work our way up to childlike faith. Because it takes a while to get past some of the quibbling to where we get to the point where I read it, God says it, I believe it, I do it. That's the childlike faith, whereas in the early stages, sometimes we want all the little details, and Nicodemus just wasn't there yet. He was, um, so... I'm I'm sure you you guys all remember the day you realized your parents didn't know everything. And that was a shock, right? Because there's a time where, like, you're this mom, that's dad, they know what they're talking about. Well, you hear kids say, my dad said, and their whole point is my authority. You must be wrong, as my dad said. Yeah, childlike faith to me is really intimidating. I, I see something of myself and all other, like, when I was a younger believer in Nicodemus, where you're still you're kind, of, you're kind of a little more hung up on the signs, you're a little more hung up on the, the where, you know, and the how, and, and the details are good, but then you get to a point where you're sort of like, well, what about this challenging passage? God said it, I believe it, you know. Right. But that, that's, that childlike faith seems to come later. So, yeah. I don't know, I just think that's yeah. interesting to watch Nicodemus wrestle with those, that early... Yeah. Those early steps. Yeah. Cool. Other thoughts, questions? Reminds me of a quote. Oh, yeah. Go, Don. 
reminds me of a quote by Brennan Manning that we uh, desire clarity to avoid trust. Well, and let me and let me say, there's two different ways. do with that you know which is a different thing than someone saying i don't think you're understanding that rightly totally different thing this guy's like no i i think the way you're reading is right on we just don't do that (laughs) okay okay anyway um that's a long roundabout way of trying to answer what you're saying but yeah i i think that asking for understanding as we're committed to obeying is great 
But the asking for understanding so that will obey, watch out. Carolyn. I just wanted to say that the example that comes to mind when you speak of that is Zacharias when he's confronted with the angel and he says, well, how do I know that kind of thing, which is challenging versus Mary who says the same thing, but it's not with a challenge. It's with a, I don't understand it, but I believe it. Um, Good example in scripture. Great example. How about this? Abraham's conundrum. God has promised me through this child and no other will your name be blessed and will I make you a mighty nation. Kill this child. Abraham's like, well, I guess he's going to, I'm not sure what he's going to do. I'm probably going to raise him from the dead. I don't, that's not what he does, but that's how Abraham feasted together. He didn't understand and he was guessing at what God was doing. So when I talk to people in suffering and you want to say, Lord, I, we'd love to see what you're doing through this. This is painful and hard and if you could show us some of the beauty and some of your purposes, that's a great prayer. If, however, and it's all the tonal difference, why? Why didn't you give me what I wanted? Why did you give me this bad thing? That's the, the I mean, and we all know the difference. We all can hear the difference in the tone of voice of a child um, when they say it. And that's, that's the, the key distinction. Um, who do we think we are? You know? Um, so, yeah, a submissive child saying, Yes, but I don't understand. Mary. Or Zechariah. That's crazy. You know. Yeah. No, it's a great example. Great example. Other any other thoughts or questions? Tim. So my question is do I have a right understanding on my part on how I can grow in understanding? So I tend to think of and I don't have it memorized, only one part, the balance between Job 28, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 28, 28, um, to depart from evil is understanding. So I view that as my part. If I want to grow in understanding, I need to be continually repenting and putting away sin. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in John fourteen twenty six that the Holy Spirit will, you know, bring to our remembrance or the Holy Spirit will teach us. Yeah. Um, am I on track there or yes. is there some things you could add to it to give me clarity? You know what a vicious cycle is? Let me propose a virtuous cycle. So we sit down, we ask God to open our eyes, and then God shows us something in his word. I don't think we have any business asking him to show us anything else to we're willing to apply the thing he showed us. So God's, and sometimes the thing God shows me in his word isn't the thing I was looking to see. He shows me I, he about my wife more, you know, He's kinder to my mom, whatever. And that's, that's what he shows me. I was trying to figure something else out. And then it's like, okay, what are you going to do with that? And when I'm functioning properly, I put into, I try to apply, I try to look out what God's showing me. Well, 
I think this, he shows more. He shows more. He shows more. And he, that's how he's cleansing us progressively. Um, if, if God's showing you things, if you're aware of things, he's got his thumb on in your life and you're ignoring him, at best, I wouldn't expect for any more insight. You know? So, no, you're right. Putting Whoever's given little is responsible for little. Whoever's given much is responsible for much. Whatever God's shown you, you're responsible for. What are, you, are you being faithful with what he's revealed to you? Are you, are you being faithful with what he's shown you? And if you are, then, yeah, you're, you're on the road to sanctification and growth. If you're not, watch out. He's got a rod. And he disciplines those he loves. Right? Um, so, yeah. You're on, you are on the right track, Tim. Anything else? Renee. Well, this is more a practical question than a spiritual question, but as far as, I like that story about the bones and the burial. I'd never heard that before, and it reminds me of uh, the dry bones becoming flesh and walking in the days of Ezekiel. And it brings me to the question, is there a preference of cremation over being buried? <laughs> <laughs> and is it something we should consider as Christians? Well, I think we should consider it. Um, so let me, let me, this will be the last one, because we've got to stop really to flip this room over. Um, there's no law. If you want to get cremated, there's no sin. There's no law. The Lord has given us no command. I think that what we do with our bodies, with our death and burial, um, we should think through. Joseph, it matters to Joseph where he's buried. Um, I think that's good. He wants, I mean, I heard one person say it this way. In the resurrection, Joseph wants his first step in the resurrection to be in the promised land, not in Egypt. You know, so as a result of that, um, I, I tend to think, I don't be really careful. I don't want to burden anyone's conscience. Do what seems good to you. I, I think historically Christians have treated the human body, which bears God's image with dignity. I think that's good. And so forms of burial that preserve that, I think probably are good. There's no, the Lord, the Lord has not given us a law, so I don't want to burden any of that. Um, but I think that factoring what we do with the bodies in view of the resurrection of the dead, in view of the fact that the body is not some insignificant husk, can suggest certain things. And yet I don't want anyone who's thinking differently to, I, that we think through it and the implications, absolutely, we should do that. Whether or not someone comes to the same conclusions I do is, is a different matter. Um, so, so yeah. Thank you. I'm dodging sort of your question, but. but. <laughs> well, I'm trying to avoid being like, there's no law, but if you're really spiritual, you'll do this, which I just think's lame. So, um, thinking it through would be the real issue. Treating the body with dignity as, as something that bears God's image and keeping in mind the resurrection Factoring those things in the hope of the resurrection. Well, I'll give you one example for myself. I, 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 maybe I hadn't been to a lot of funerals that came to Iowa, but I don't think I'd ever been to an open casket funeral. Um, and I am sure people think through open casket funerals differently. But from my point of view, okay, I'll put, I'll put step my, my mom is telling me to just stop talking. Um, but uh, from my point of view, what comes to my mind when I see all the paint and the makeup is the pagan refusal to acknowledge death, the desire to make the body look alive even though it's dead. Now, it may be 
another people might be doing that primarily because they want closure. They want to remember the person. There can be good reasons they do that. To the degree that it's to the degree that it's done to deny the ugliness. Death is ugly. Jesus wept outside of Lazarus's tomb, and we're going to make it look safe. And they're just resting. Like, no, this is awful. That tends to how I come at it. So I don't want to be buried with an open casket. I don't want to have an open casket. Um, something awful happened. That's how I'm thinking through it. Someone else might think, I want to remember them. I want to see them one last time. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. So it's how you think through it. So when I think through it, I think all of the preservatives and all of the, the paint and all that stuff, that's, that's, that's what the Egyptians did. That's, what, that's how I process it. You don't need to process it the way I process it, but you do need to process it, and you do need to process it in a way that is faithful. So I'll just give you an example of whatever I, when I die, whatever I end up doing, Serena, no open casket. Um, <laughs> just a cardboard box. will be good. Yeah, yeah, okay. The part, the part that bugs me with cremation is the grinding of the bones. If they could cremate you and just give you, like, the bones. So I need to get a Jewish tomb. Right? That's what you need to do is get a Jewish tomb. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. No, there's no, I, there's no word from the Lord. We, we have the patterns that the early Israel and the early church did. That's all we got. I don't want to burden anyone with any rules or laws that we don't have. Okay. I'm going to end this 10 minutes early so we can switch this room over. Thank you very much. And we'll be having our fellowship lunch here in about 15, 20 minutes. <laughs>